Welcome to Law Technology Now with host Monica Bay, editor-in-chief of ALM's award-winning magazine, Law Technology News. Hear the latest about technology for the legal community. If it's tech, it's a topic right here. Good day. My name is Monica Bay, and I'm the editor-in-chief of Law Technology News for ALM Media. We're thrilled to have you here today, and I hope you're going to find our new podcast extremely helpful to your practice of law. You can listen to this podcast on a variety of sites. Uh, First and foremost, on our new domain, www.lawtechnologynow.com, or you can find it on the Legal Talk Network, our partner, www.legaltalknetwork.com. You can also find it on iTunes, and you can find links to it on the Law Technology News um, website, on the EDD Update blog, and on the Common School blog. Uh, my special guest today is George Radoy. George is a well-known figure in the legal community. He's extremely active. He's on our LTN Editorial Advisory Board. He's on the Legal Tech Advisory Board. And he is Director of Global Practice Technology and Information Services at Sherman & Sterling here in New York. George is responsible for the development, implementation, and overall admin of the practice-specific technology worldwide, as well as oversight of Sherman's Information Center and Records. George, thank you so much for carving time out today for us for our podcast. Thank you, Monica. Uh, Today we're going to talk about issues that come about when there is international litigation and specifically talk about some of the problems and challenges that litigators uh, encounter when they are dealing with uh, e-discovery involving multiple languages. And, uh, George, I know this is a topic near and dear to your heart because you are the king of multiple languages. And how many languages do you personally speak? (laughs) Five. (laughs) Ah, see, I told you. So why don't you start by setting the stage for us, and can you tell our listeners just a little bit of what some of the the, um, key issues are for practitioners who are trying to conduct e-discovery in global disputes? Well, thank you for that, Monica. I think first and foremost, it's uh, important to know that even if a law firm itself is not global, the clients that we support these days are. And as a result of it, uh, there is data that's located in multiple locations that are that is actually in different languages. So uh, I think the first one uh, that we need to take into consideration is the fact that the data is practically all over the globe which immediately kicks in uh, uh, certain issues and problems and, uh, um, and approaches with the actual collection of data. Uh, when you collect data in Europe, for example, uh, one needs to consider the uh, uh, issues with the uh, global uh, data protection and data privacy restrictions that are uh, specific to the European Union and also to countries in, in Europe under that jurisdiction. I remember from some prior conversations we've had that one of those issues is that information that is freely available in U.S. litigation is often illegal to collect overseas. Can you spend just a moment on that before we get into the specifics about multiple languages? 
Well, certainly in, in Europe in particular, uh, data privacy and data protection is at the top of everybody's list, uh, uh, taking into consideration that even if you create a document on company system, uh, according to the American uh, uh, profile, this document belongs to a company, but in Europe, this document still belongs to you, and uh, therefore protected by the data protection and privacy issues. And in order for the data to leave a certain jurisdiction, there needs to be a very clear sign-off uh, by not only the company that you're collecting data from, but certain individuals that are able to release that data. And so I assume that would uh, raise some strategy issues in the litigation as to where you start your uh, data processing and so forth and so on. Yes, certainly it is the case. And uh, in order to avoid issues, uh, I think the most logical approach to take would be to keep data in the European Union if you can uh, and, and hire specific vendors that are not only able to collect the data but also able to host the data in the European Union with certain access. It should also be taken into consideration that the, the protection of privacy laws uh, can be flexible depending on your approach. Uh, you can certainly keep data in Europe, but under certain jurisdiction and given the proper certification Safe Harbor is one of them. Uh, Sherman Sterling is certified to be Safe Harbor, for example. You can host the data in Europe to comply with the European data protection and privacy laws, but you can access it from the United States, which is important given that some of the firms have majority of their attorneys working on the United States soil. Now, obviously, everyone who's doing EDD knows that uh, electronic discovery is becoming increasingly computerized, that uh, computer programs and software programs are used to conduct searches, to find relevant documents, and that there are many, many, there's now more than 600 vendors who are involved in the in the gathering and processing of electronic data, and we all know now that 99% of all of all uh, documents, uh, corporate documents, are created electronically. George, talk a little bit with all this software about what happens when, in a global lawsuit or dispute, where you may have documents in multiple languages many of which are not English, and you may even have the same documents translated in a case in three or four cases. How does the software deal with this? And uh, in particular, can you explain to some of our listeners what Unicode is and how it works? Yeah, I think this is, this is very important to keep in mind when you deal with multilingual uh, collections of data. The idea in e-discovery, in any e-discovery project, is that you bring the data in a universal environment and you assure that it's properly indexed that will allow attorneys or anybody who reviews the documents uh, to seamlessly go from document to document and, most importantly, search across the documents. Um, the uh, Unicode or double-bit characters, uh, uh, as some of us refer to it, is, is, is nothing really more than an extended table of characters that allows indexing of a database in all the languages that are available worldwide. Most of the United States-based software uh, softwares that were developed in the past 10 years in litigation support are based on ASCII, which is only United States code and uh, only includes recognition of Latin-based characters. But if a vendor that you hire or the software that you use is Unicode compliant, it enables you not only to view documents in all languages available in the world, but also index the database and therefore search the database in those characters. George, does that work with the non-romance uh, languages? 
I know, for example, uh, in many of the Asian countries, their languages uh, have far more characters than the traditional Romance languages. How, how do you take a language that may have hundreds of characters that are very nuanced and translate that into, the, for example, English well, there are really several approaches to take here. It, 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 again, it, we are now working in an environment that is Unicode compliant, which means that you can search in those native languages. But the reality is that the language of business remains English, and you need to have certain documents that are key to your case uh, to be translated into English. The approach that we often take at Sherman and Sterling, given that we are located in 22 countries, we index the database and identify from the very beginning the subsets of documents in certain languages and just make them available for attorneys in those countries. For example, if we would have uh, French, uh, English, uh, Italian, and, and Chinese as part of that uh, collection, we would certainly involve attorneys in those respective countries, the native speakers, who would look through the documents, identify the most important documents, and, and place attorney comments or the summaries in, in, in the appropriate field. And if the centralized uh, location that is probably going to be communicating in English would ask for further translation of documents. Those documents will be translated fully, but in order to interest, uh, to save the time and the uh, save the uh, cost, you can certainly go through the process of first identifying uh, identifying the most important documents and then translating them later. Now, George, what if you have a huge global case that might involve multi-million documents, which is no longer uncommon, and you're tasked with the idea of, of managing the language issues on this. Is this something where a law firm uh, representing one of the parties might look to, I mean, obviously any law firm might have a few folks in their operation who speak multiple languages, but is this a situation where you might even do mechanical translations or would you outsource to companies that are basically translation services. What are the pros and cons? And, and is it a situation where a law firm might hire a whole bunch of temps to come in, uh, perhaps paralegals, to come in to do nothing but translate documents? How do the firms make those decisions, and what options are there out there for these kinds of large-scale, big cases? Well, there's, there's certainly options there, Monica, and, and I think uh, you, you, you really hit the nail on the head. When uh, under certain parameters, it might be useful to use uh, so-called auto translation. It's a software that exists out there, existed actually for many years, and is actually being perfected as, as technology becomes better and better. It would not give you an exact interpretation of the document in a way that you can present it as evidence to court or to talk to a witness in, about any particular issue. But it will give you a very basic, uh, very controlled understanding of what the document is about. It will actually help you to create electronic text, which is the certainly a basis for uh, proper database functioning when you can search across and pick up in certain aspects to narrow down your understanding of a document collection. When you arrive at that point, when you really understand the set of documents that you're dealing with, it actually would be a good idea to start uh, hiring people uh, in, that are called 
so-called human translators that will actually dis- the translate document in a way that it would be understood uh, uh, by a person uh, who is involved in a certain questioning. And I think it's important to actually take in, into consideration that when you create any kind of exhibit, whether it would be a deposition exhibit or a trial exhibit, you probably will not want to use the uh, the machine translation if you want to present it to a judge or to a jury. So that's where the creativity comes in. Certainly you can bring certain people in to translate the documents. You can uh, you can sort of do mix and match with the um, with the automatic translation. But the most important piece I think that if your database is residing in a universal format and you have an ability to search across it and, and narrow it down because especially when you deal with discovery projects as we deal these days, where there are so many documents, it would be absolutely cost prohibitive to translate every single document by the human translator. So remaining creative, understanding what you want to arrive at, uh, creating a database, coming back to the Unicode issue, that will be completely and transparently searchable can help you identify key documents that can be translated fully later on. So it sounds like you use that as your initial screening and then get the humans involved. George, we're running out of time. Uh, Before we finish up, would you tell folks who might have some questions for you how they can best reach you? Uh, They can reach me uh, by my email. It's uh, George, uh, regular spelling, dot rudoy, R-U-D-O-Y, at Sherman, S-H-E-A-R-M-A-N, dot com. And that's the best way. Our guest today has been George Rudoy. He is a member of the LTN Editorial Advisory Board and is, as he told you, with Sherman and Sterling. George is the author of an article in our January issue, which you can find online at www.lawtechnologynews.com. Thank you so much for listening. This is the second in our series of monthly podcasts, and I hope you'll join us in February. Uh, In the meantime, you can find Law Technology News online at www.lawtechnologynews.com. And you can find this podcast if you want to come back and hear it again at www.lawtechnologynow.com. I want to thank our partner, Legal Talk Network and Law.com. Thank you for joining us today. Law Technology Now is produced by the broadcast professionals at the Legal Talk Network. Thanks for listening. Join Monica Bay for next month's podcast on the technology issues affecting the legal profession today.